<clears throat> I had to bring it with us. And lead off our message by recognizing it's time to go. And checking to see what you got packed in your bag as we go. My Seth was watching me with this suitcase. He says, Dad, why, why do you have a suitcase? I said, because we're moving. He goes, we're moving? <laughs> yes! Can we take the Wii? <laughs> That's indicative of what you have planned in your move. Well, you know, this is a, kind of a beginning of a surreal moment. And next week will be... Uh, I don't. I don't know what next week's going to feel like. Uh, I, I don't. I don't know if I have the emotional capacity for next week. To, I'm going to have to take some kind of sedatives or something this week. Just kind of dull me so that I can be there and be functional. But you know, we've we've come to the end of quite a road, and as I've met with more and more of the leaders lately, trying to get some time to just hear their hearts and what God's doing. And uh, realizing, you know, when people move into a building, it's usually not done this way. You know, you usually don't have these kind of circumstances that lead you into that. And so the last three years of our lives have been such an unusual set of events that have crowded into our individual lives and our corporate lives. And yet today, in this particular category, we come to the end of the road. Um, this, is the, this is the last time this is the last time um, <clears throat> one of my kids will ask me dad you coming to my game today no no but next week I'm going to be there I'm miss three years of games it's a whole season of their lives um this is the last day. You will have two dates on your notes. <clears throat> this is the last day a team of unseen men got up very early this morning, packed up all this stuff, came here early and set it up for us. As Peter already clarified, please program your car to drive differently next Saturday. This is the last time Saturday morning we will be doing church. I know some of you have fallen in love with Saturdays, and it's going to take some adjustment for you there. Um, this is the last time half the church will be gathered. You have no idea how much that means to me. Um, there's uniqueness in, in what God imparts in meetings. That sort of can't be duplicated. And there are times where Saturday doesn't look anything like Sunday. And there's times when Sunday doesn't look anything like Saturday. And, and for us to be together means so much. And so we are, by God's grace, come to the end of this season. And, and it's, it's time to go. And so what I want to do, is I want to pull apart two questions from that statement. One, it's time to go. And two, are you packed yet? Let me start first with it being time to go. It's, it's time. And there's something about even saying that. You know, if you're going on a trip and your kids are anticipating that, and you say, it's time. It's like all the elements have come to a, a point where you know, it's time to get in the car and go. Well, you know, there's an element to our life. I don't know. Sometimes life can kind of feel like, we, we stepped onto a moving sidewalk, and you don't control the pace of this thing. It moves at its own speed, and it's going somewhere that somebody else programmed it to go. Right? You don't get to get on an escalator and determine anything about where you're going or how fast you're going to get there, do you? It's going where it's going, and it's taking you there at the speed it's taking you there. Now, life sometimes, I don't know, Katrina kind of helps us understand, sometimes life feels that way, right? You got on this thing and it moved and it moved through this tragic event. And then that event began to take on life of its own and, and you had no idea how long is this going to last? Where exactly is it going to end? How are we going to end up? And, you know, that's true in kind of the seasons of our lives. 
And so we're left sometimes asking the question, you know, who's controlling the pace of this thing, the seasons of our lives, whether that season is the exile of a Katrina-type event or whether it's health issues that you've been going through for a season of your life and you're starting to ask, how long is this going to go on? Who's controlling this? Where is this going anyway? How is it going to end? Or financial, when you're in a financial question mark for our country, and maybe for some people individually, you don't need the, the economy to go bad for you to have personal financial issues that you're wondering about in your life. How long is this going to go on? What's it going to look like when this season's done? What's going to be left of me when all this is, is over in my life? Or maybe it's a season of singleness that you have been anticipating getting married. You're at a point in your life where you thought you would have been married by now and, you, and you're questioning, how long is this going to go on? Where, where does this end? Do I ever get married? Well, I think it's very important for us to recognize something. And we're going to learn some things again from the study of the scriptures con- pertaining to the exile, that period where the people of God went into exile. Well, one of the things I want us to take away and recognize as we say today's the day, uh, it's time. It's time to pack up and go is that God appoints and controls the time. God's in charge of these times and seasons. And there's so much scripture that we could go into. I was tempted to preach out of the verse, I think it's in Deuteronomy 1 or 2, where God's about to bring the people into the promised land. It's come to that point in their life where it's time to go in. Now, they've just gone through a season of wandering, where God was intentionally letting a generation die off before he went into the promised land with them. And they kind of circled different places in their land of wandering. And they got around Mount Seir and God comes with a revelation and he says, you have circled this mountain long enough. It's time to move on. See, God knew that day was on the calendar. While they're wandering in the wilderness and wondering, what on earth does this ever look like? When does this ever come to an end? God had already put a day that they were going to travel through the course of time and arrive on that day and God would then say, you've circled here long enough, time to go. See, God appoints times. And there's nothing happening in God's management of our life that's surprising God. God doesn't have any couriers running to him, informing him about something that he didn't take into account, therefore there's going to be a delay. God is not like a building contractor. As much as we love our building contractor, he's not like one. Look at these scriptures in your outline. Galatians 4, the biggest event in human history. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. When Jesus Christ comes to planet Earth, it is precisely, precisely when the fullness of time, when all the events that needed to take place, and when you visit the the prophetic time clock of events that needed to happen, there was a particular time when Jesus was to come. And in exactly that moment, salvation appears for man. Mark chapter 1, when Jesus comes, it says, Now after John was arrested... Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. This is it. And the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, there's some sobering implications to that verse right there. Paul's going to pick that same theme up when he talks about today is the day of salvation. There's a moment. This is very humbling for any of us here who are not quite sure whether we're right with God. There's a moment for you to get right with God. Now, here's the humbling part. You're not in charge of it. Don't arrogantly think that that I'm putting on on the calendar the day I'm coming to God. I'm, I'm just not ready to do that yet. Listen, listen, this is not about you being ready. It's about God's time. And if God's knocking on your door, now's your time. Don't ever think, don't ever make the mistake of thinking that you're in charge of getting him knocking. That you can produce in your own heart the day of responsiveness. Don't fool yourself into thinking that. If God comes by grace and knocks on your door, behold, today is a day of salvation. And you better treat that soberly and you best respond. What's interesting in this timetable, put one more passage in there just for us to see something about God appointing and controlling time. You know, God had set forth a time when Jesus Christ would come. He was the king bringing the kingdom, right? And then he announces this kingdom in Mark chapter 4. In Acts chapter 1, the beginning of the 
work of the Spirit in the apostles and the disciples, there's a little bit of an anxious moment here for the disciples. This is what they say. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Now, we we can take some great lessons from these verses right here that would address a huge realm of issues like anxiety in our lives. Because we get anxious about things, and especially get anxious about seasons of our lives. Will that season ever begin for me? Will this season ever end for me? And we get anxious about managing that thing. Right? Well, there's a couple of implications here right now that should speak loud to us this morning. And Jesus says, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. By his own authority. By his ability and right as a sovereign God to fix the universe however he wants it to be fixed. By his own authority. Not by you and I giving him permission. Listen, not by you and I living good enough for God to finally be able to do something. You understand the the world crashed and it became terrible. And God had fixed salvation into the experience of man. You know, while you were sinners, Christ died. When you were his enemies, God loved. So by his own authority... This is a great rescue of man, that God's plan is not contingent upon you and I ever being good enough to get God to finally do what only God can do. God does what God does, and he fixes in his own time. And when we studied the exile and continue to look at this, remember, the exile was fixed by God. God prophesied and prophesied for years. Why is prophecy so important in the Old Testament? Because it, it tells you that God is in control of everything. Prophecy is a very important thing in the Old Testament. It's not just some cool trick, some guy. Ooh, he can look in a ball and tell the future. Ooh. No, no, no. It's advertising for you that God is in control of the future. That's what it's telling you. Because if somebody prophesies something and it never happens, well, he's not in control. But when he prophesies and it happens, I have confidence that, God, you're in control of the future. And so when God kept telling them, you're going into exile, Do you realize he had to get some foreign king to cooperate with that idea? He didn't have a problem doing that. It was only too quick for Nebuchadnezzar in the sin of his own heart to jump forward. Ooh, 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 pick me, pick me. I'll take him. But what was even more of a challenge was for God to control the season and to say, well, it'll only be 70 years. So you greedy little king, in 70 years, they'll be turned loose. Now that was more hard, wasn't it? It's easy to get the guy to be a jerk. It's, it's a hard thing to get somebody to be a blessing. But God knew exactly the day when he would stir up Cyrus's heart. And Cyrus, another Pers- a Persian king this time, had no interest in the glory of God, would become so willing on the day when God said, time for them to go. Ooh, I think it'd be great for these people to go now. Why is that? Because God has fixed the seasons of our lives. God appoints the times of our lives. So, you know, if you find yourself, you're here and you're in exile in some way, you're like, God, I'm just, I feel like I'm so removed from experiencing the goodness and the blessing of what you have for me. Can, can you just realize in your anxiousness, God, is it, is it now that you're going to bring the kingdom to Israel? God, is it now that this is going to end for me? Is it now that this is going to change for me? Well, you, you need to realize God has fixed that season. You enter in under his sovereign watch, you will exit under his sovereign watch as well. But here's a key little element here, because they kind of got corrected here. Because quite honestly, they were about to miss something. In this context, and this actually is the, the verse that Danny preached last week, the first few verses of, of Acts chapter 1. The event that was foreseen by God... You know, the cross is the means to what's about to be happening in Acts chapter 1. It's the restoration of the presence of God into the heart of a believer. It's the coming of the Holy Spirit with power to live in us. That event's about to take place, and guess what? They're not looking for it. 
They're right where God has them. God has fixed a season for them. They're right where they're supposed to be. But this event's about to come from this direction and they're staring here and going, is it now that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Now you know what they meant by that, right? Can we be cabinet members? Can we get this Roman tax structure off of us? Great, a new president. This is going to be great. This is what they're staring at. And there's a correction in here from Jesus. You know, it, it, it's not for you to know the times and the seasons that God has fixed. But, but you're about to receive power when the Holy Spirit is coming. Look, look over here. Look over here right now. Receive what I have for you right now. It's not time for kingdom Israel. It's time for the Spirit of God to come and you're not even looking for it. Now listen, how many times, and this is, I think some of us are going to look back with some level of regret that we lived this little three-year exile period, this strange time frame in the history of New Orleans. And, and we just looked for the end of it. God, is it now? Is it now this is coming to an end? God, is this going to be over now? Well, you know, in a way, guys, part of it's over for us. We're going home next week. What I don't want to do is I don't want to want to experience the regret of God saying, I was trying to tell you something for three years. And that time is over now. And we're moving on. But I was doing something and all you were interested in was the time that I had fixed is when it comes to an end. Keith, I, I fixed the time. It's going to come to an end. Don't worry about that right now. Listen for what I'm saying to you right now. Listen, getting, getting worried about managing God's sovereignty will definitely distract you from receiving what he's doing right now. God's doing something right now. Now listen, great lesson to learn because we're about to enter into a new season. It's going to be a new season and God has fixed this season as well. And it will run a course. You get on the escalator here and it's going to take us somewhere, but God has designed for us to go. And in that moment... I want to be listening. God, I want my ears to be open. I want to be attentive to you. You've set the times. I find myself in them by your plan. I want to receive now in this new season. Secondly, about time. God not only appoints the time and controls the time, but he places you in the time. He places you in history. I like, I don't know who it was that I got this little thing from. His Story. History is his story. Sometimes when you study history and you study it from a secular standpoint, you miss the main character. Right? You learn about all these people who did this, went there, went that. and Well, this is his story. This is his planet. His story is being told. His redemptive purpose is being realized. Now, in an interesting way, what God does is he has this time. And of all the time frames that you could have existed in, he puts you in this one. He appointed you. Here. He appointed you here right now. He appointed you in New Orleans to live here in August of 2005 during an event that would change this city and would impact people in all kinds of ways. He appointed you to be a part of this church in this season where there would be rebuilding and, and recovery and a new day coming. God, God put you there. There's specifics there. And when you look at what God does, let me pull some thoughts from our exile period. And we're going to, if you want to find Nehemiah here, we're going to look at Nehemiah's life for just a moment this morning. Turn to Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah joins a line of individuals that God had appointed to fulfill his plan. And he would stand in line after, you know, bad king Nebuchadnezzar gets appointed by God to go and take the people into captivity. King Cyrus gets appointed by God to release them from that captivity. Now, they still got to go home, and there's still some problems with that. So God appoints a man named Zerubbabel. In 540 B.C., Zerubbabel gets stirred up by God that he's going to lead a wave of the exiles back home. Then the, you remember the story of Esther? I know sometimes this is very helpful to get time frames. You know, we hear this great story about Esther and she gets to become queen, but sometimes we have no idea where that happened, right? And when did this happen? Was this like the, the day after Moses died, Esther came? Where does she fit? Well, interesting, here's where she fits. 540 B.C., you have Zerubbabel leading some of the exiles back to Jerusalem. 480 B.C., Esther pops up on the scene. The people of the Jewish nation is still under Persian domination. And there's a particular 
leader, influential mover and shaker in the Persian Empire named Haman. And he's come up with a plan to exterminate the Jews. It's interesting, my, my kids were asking me the other day, it seemed like the, the Jews are always in the news. You know, my kids actually asked me, how come, how come Stalin wanted to kill the Jews and Hitler wanted to kill the Jews? And, and you heard the, the Israel being talked about in the debates the other night. Why is that? Well, <laughs> because God chose them. And the moment he did, the hordes of hell decided we're against them. We want to destroy them from the face of the earth. So interesting, in, in Persia, out of nowhere, this guy Haman decides, let's exterminate all the Jews. And he begins a plan that would have eradicated the Jewish nation. Except for this strange series of events. Now this is how Esther gets even to where you know who she is. Esther is just a nobody little Jewish girl. Pretty little girl, but still a nobody. And one day... The king, King Xerxes, decides to call for his wife, Vashti. And she decides, I ain't coming. This is, this is all that happened. I ain't coming. Tell him I'm busy doing my nails. I don't know. But she ain't coming. Well, you didn't do that to the king. It didn't matter who you were. You did not do that to the king. The king banishes her. Huh, you ain't coming? You ain't never coming. Get out of here. I need a new wife. Just out of the blue, he needs a new wife now. And he decides to sort of do some kind of a lottery thing. Bring me all the good-looking women in the land. Well, Esther happened to be one of them. A little Jewish girl in a Persian empire. And of all the beauty pageant contestants, just by chance, of course, Esther gets chosen to be queen. Now, you've got to pay attention to details of stuff like this because you've got to know God's at work in categories that you're not paying attention to. See, the average Jew running around thought, Oh, how cool. Somebody from Louisiana got picked. Oh, isn't that cool? I had no idea why that was significant. Until sometime after that, Haman decides we're going to wipe all the Jews out. And then Mordecai comes, remember, to Esther and says, Esther, do you realize you have access to the king? You could get the king to override this. You're our only hope. And she's hesitant. She's not sure she wants this assignment. Because again, it's, even though you're the wife of the king, you're not safe. The kings didn't trust anybody because everybody was out to kill them. So even if I married you, I probably forced you to marry me anyway, so you might kill me in the night. So you just didn't rush into the king. You didn't have a meeting with the king because that's what murderers did. You just didn't pop into the king one day. It was very carefully screened. But she's going to need to go pop in. She's got to barge in on the king and, and make a plea. For the people of God to be spared. And Mordecai tells her, Could it be, Esther, that you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Esther, you just don't exist by chance. You're here for this particular moment. Listen, don't let that be an Esther truth and not a Keith truth. Or David truth. Or Zach truth. This is a truth. You exist in this moment in time for such a time as this. That may not be to save the Jewish nation, but it's for something in the kingdom of God to be built. So God assigns us. Ezra was assigned by God to lead a wave. After 480 BC, almost uh, 20 years or so later, Ezra is going to lead a wave of exiles to come back. And then Nehemiah is going to lead the next procession back to Jerusalem from the Persian Empire. In 445 B.C. Now, I want us to just see something. We're in Nehemiah chapter 1. Watch how God accomplishes this. Nehemiah is about to leave his position. He's got a good position. He's going to leave his position in the capital of Susa, which is over in Babylon. And he's going to choose to go back to Jerusalem. Now, watch how this happens. It looks just very natural, but you've got to realize God is doing something here. God is traveling down these natural corridors to accomplish his will. The words of Nehemiah, verse 1, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hekeliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. So they've traveled all the way from Jerusalem. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province, 
who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Can you hold on to some time frame here? They didn't all leave in exile yesterday and he's bringing word back. Right? They left in 540, almost 100 years. And another wave went back about 13 years before this. So it's been a while since they've been gone. Out of sight, out of mind. Right? But word comes back and it reaches Nehemiah. Look in verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful... I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. Oh, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant. To the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, and this man being the king. Now, I was cupbearer to the king. Now, Nehemiah, you got to understand, Nehemiah's got a cush gig going on. Nehemiah is cupbearer to the king when this revelation comes to him. And the revelation hits him like a ton of bricks. Now, I want to highlight something about that. I've got to imagine, in a hundred years, no one's come back and said anything in a hundred years. I have a hard time believing that. But right now, it's time for Nehemiah to be undone by that. Now it's time. I don't know, maybe he heard some of that before. I've got to believe, in a hundred years, the ruins of Jerusalem that have not still been rebuilt had to have been news that somebody talked about. But all of a sudden, for some strange reason, Nehemiah is moved in his heart and it sits on him like a burden. And he can't shake it. And he's so bothered, he begins to pray. He begins to cry out to God and he's broken and he wants God's glory to be seen again. He keeps talking about that place where God's name would dwell. That's Jerusalem. And his passion is all over that. Now, now listen... This summons of God, that's a summons of God. You know, sometimes that's how God summons you. He just sticks a burden on you that's so great that you've got to do something with it. Well, that's Nehemiah. But listen, this summons comes with a cost. Because Nehemiah has to make a choice between cupbearer and ruined city. I mean, I'm pretty sure he's got some pretty cool toilets in the palace. He doesn't even have an outhouse over here. You understand the difference? He's cupbearer. He's got, he's got one of the coolest jobs in the whole kingdom. He gets to hang out with the king. Now remember, kings are paranoid. So if you're cupbearer, he's begun to trust you. See, because you could poison him just like that, right? Here, how about a, I've got a new wine for you, king. It's going to taste a little different, but you're going to love it. Now, you could be killed by the cupbearer just like that. So the fact that he's cupbearer, he's a trusted man in the king's palace. He gets to go to all the cool events. He's probably, this is like being assistant to, to the president. You go wherever he goes. The big White House events, you're there. You get to stay in swank locations. You get to travel to great meetings. This is a great job. But the burden to go back to a ruined city and live there is greater to Nehemiah than to stay in the benefits that he'd experienced by living there. Listen, beware this is a warning and encouragement. Hold your successes and your position in life lightly. 
Because at whatever moment, God could come around and say, I got something for you to do. And whether you're a cupbearer or whether you're the king, I want you to put that to the side and I want you to do what I'm telling you to do. Now listen, that's a good word for us right now. Because there's stuff for us to do in returning. And now I know all of us, we've got jobs, we've got responsibilities, we've got families, we've got a lot of things that are supposed to be in our lives. And I'm going to look in just a moment. I'm going to show you that Nehemiah had those things too. But yet he was called by God. And when he answers that call and he begins to pray, he gets under the burden of God, which is the first thing, if you're feeling a burden from God, start praying about it. Start getting under it. Start bringing it before God so God can begin to season it in you for the day that he begins to deploy you. Well, something needs to be done. A hundred years and the city and the wall around Jerusalem is still a wreck, which makes them vulnerable to every little raiding, marauding group that wants to run through Jerusalem. They just keep running in and out of it, stealing things. People can't advance. The city's not safe. A hundred years have gone by. Now, watch what happens here. People with a burden. This is one of the things you'll always hear us talking about, building new ministries into the church, is give us the guy with a burden for it and we'll build it. Now, because this has been the experience. This is the reality. You try and build a ministry and there's no one with a burden for it, uh, it, it, it's sort of like, you know, a glider. It's got no rocket, no motor, nothing. It's like as soon as you leave it out of your hands, it starts to die. All right, so pastoral team, administration starts thinking, how can we do this? Let's formulate this ministry. Right? We've, we've wrestled with mercy ministries. If it weren't for Daniel, and Frank, and guys who've had a burden for this, let me tell you what mercy ministry would look like in Lakeview Christian Center. Boom. Any ministry is that way. But Nehemiah has a burden for this ministry, and it's sitting in him. And watch what he does. When you get a guy with a burden, you're going to do some stuff. Look in chapter 2 there. Verse 1, in the month of Nisan, the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had not been sad in his presence. He just didn't do that, by the way. One of the reasons why he didn't do it was, one, because the king just wanted pleasantness around him. But the other reason why he didn't do it is somebody who's about to kill you doesn't look like they're going to smile at you. There's a nervousness to their face. Right? I mean, you, you can kind of see that. If you ever watch any movies about terrorists or something, before they're going to go pull off their deal, there's a look on their face. It's like they just kind of can't look like, hey, bud, what's up? You know, they're about to kill you. There's something in the psyche of a man that's kind of, you don't look right. You don't, you don't look right. <laughs> so the king would have reason to be concerned that he didn't want sad people in his presence. Verse 2. The king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. <laughs> this, this is not a good thing. The king, he could be suspecting your head could be coming off really quickly. Because the king doesn't want to die. And he'll do whatever he has to do to make sure it doesn't happen. I said to the king, let the king live forever. <laughs> Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. Now, listen, let me just highlight something. Sometimes Peter will do this to some of you guys, and I appreciate that he will do this to you. Sometimes we've had folks who are seeking to be involved in an aspect of ministry, seeking to come to a conference, whatever it is. And there's an obstacle in the way. You know, my work schedule won't allow it. And you can just assume, well, that's immovable. Listen, this was an immovable situation for Nehemiah. You're the cupbearer. That's what you're going to be for the rest of your life, the cupbearer. You're not going anywhere. Peter often will ask you, if you, I'm just warning you in advance, if you ever come to him and say, well, I can't come to that. He will ask you, did you ask for time off? Did you ask your boss for time off? Even if you were to say, you don't know my boss. Listen, you didn't know Artaxerxes. For Nehemiah, he was, he was scared legitimately to ask for what he was asking. But see, the burden of God was in his heart. 
And you do weird things when there's a burden from God in your heart. Even put your life on the line and make a request here. And God moves in this man's heart. I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters... He can, now he starts to ask for all kinds of things. Let letters be given to me for, to the governors in the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that I may give... He may give me the timber to make beams for the gates, the fortress of the temple, and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Right? At first, it's just a matter of a burden. You look sad, you could lose your head. I'm still in the presence of the king. Would it be okay if I went? Could I take a different post in the kingdom here and go do something else? Oh, and by the way, would you mind funding this thing? (laughs) Do you mind sending me some letters and provide the building materials? That'd be great, king. And God grants him all that. Now, stuff's happening here. In Jerusalem, they're living like paupers. Until Nehemiah gets a burden from God. And he asks of God, God answers in favor, begins to spill out from God. Look in Nehemiah 4, verse 6. It says, so we built the wall. And he goes back, he says, We built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. The people had a mind to work. I want to hold on to that in just a moment. We're going to check your luggage to see if that's in your suitcase. Look in verse 15 of chapter 6. So the wall, okay, I'm summarizing through a bunch of passages there where the wall gets worked on, the people work on it, and they finally get it concluded. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month, Elul, in 52 days. Now hang that number against the backdrop of 100 years. See, Nehemiah was the man for the hour. God had put a burden in his heart, and in that burden, he takes off like a rocket. And what hadn't been done for a hundred years, he gets done in 52 days. Now, let me just warn you. People like Nehemiah are probably difficult individuals to be around. People who get under the burden and the weight of God, they're a little bit weird, they're a little driven. They're a little focused. They, they trample some things. They're, you might call them reckless, but they're reckless for the glory of God. And they get stuff done. This is an important characteristic that I think every one of us should want. We should want to be ambitious for the glory of God to be seen around us in our lives. Not so careful that we don't ever knock anything over. Well, sometimes you're going to knock some stuff over. Right? Let me just... Let me just introduce you to the burden in this man's heart. This is just fun stuff, so I can't, I can't let you pass it by if you've never read Nehemiah. Look at Nehemiah chapter 4. Let's back up just to give you a quick glimpse into this man's life. You know, they, they start to do the work. The walls are going up. Remember the guys that lived in the land who kept opposing Jerusalem, Sanballat and Tobiah, start showing up and they start hurling all kinds of accusations. These guys are part comedian, part insulter. It's kind of like Don Rickles showing up on your job site. And so they're, you know, they're casting these derisions. Oh, we're going to build a wall in a day. <laughs> and they're all laughing, just embarrassing the workers that are there. It's like, oh, look at what they built. You know, th- these were walls. They were huge, enormous walls that were intended to protect the city from a siege. So, you know, they'd launch the big rocks against it and try and bash the wall in so they could get into the city. So you needed to be able to take a beating in this wall. And you know, they're saying, if a fox jumped on it, it would, it would create a breach. <laughs> Listen to how Nehemiah responds to this. This might inform your prayer life a little differently than anything else you normally have prayed for people. I'm not suggesting that this is the right response. I'm just telling you it's Nehemiah's response. In verse 4, this is his prayer. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their heads and give them up to plunder in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt. Let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. Now, don't most of us normally pray for mercy for people? Oh, God, you know, almost Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Nehemiah is not praying that way. God, they have provoked you to anger in the sight of your people. Let them have it. I mean, and he prays for that. Now, he doesn't just deal with people who are outside of the kingdom of God that way. He deals with those inside the kingdom of God. Look in in Nehemiah chapter 13. 
Yeah, this is Peter's favorite verses in the Bible. If any of if any of your covenant groups leaders are in Peter's sphere, you might be concerned. These would be directions that he gives to the covenant group leaders on how to deal with issues. <laughs> Verse twenty-three. This is later on. The wall's been rebuilt. Now Nehemiah's got a heart to restore the life patterns of God's people. Verse twenty-three says, "In those days, also." I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half their children spoke the language of Ashdod. And they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. This guy's not casual. There's something in this guy's heart that matters to him. He's going to knock a few things over in his passion for God. And I made them take an oath. I love that. I made them take an oath. What did that look like? Did get them at gunpoint? I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God. And God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. This guy's got a bug in his bonnet. He's got a passion for God. And he's God's man appointed in that time to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild. And he gets it done in 52 days. Listen, you, you can't replace burden from God with anything else. You can't do it. And one thing be assured of, and I'll put this in your notes. When God moves, movers and shakers must emerge. Let me just also say this. When God moves, they will emerge. Because God doesn't do things apart from men. That's the great glory of God being seen in that he takes sinful, wayward human beings and he uses us in the midst of his plan to cooperate with him and want what he wants. So God doesn't do things in spite of men. God raises up men. God burdens people. And this great list from Zerubbabel and Ezra to Esther who wrestled with her assignment, not quite sure whether she wanted to do it or not, but God moved in her heart to where she said, if I perish, I perish. I'm going to do what God wants me to do. Nehemiah, who chose the ruins of Jerusalem over the comforts of the palace in Persia. Jesus Christ, the ultimate mover and shaker, who didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he humbled himself and he took the form of a servant, became obedient even to the point of death, found in the appearances of man, even to be crucified on a cross. Let this mind be in you. That was also in Christ Jesus. See, if you're going to move and shake for the kingdom of God, you can't cling to something else. You cannot do it. You can't be Nehemiah wanting to stay in Susa. You can't be Esther wanting to protect your safety. You can't even be the son of God who didn't consider being God something to be grasped. I'll take the form of a servant. Listen, when God moves and God starts to shake the earth, then you and I are going to need to hold our lives loosely. Because he's got something for us to be a part of. And if I'm too much a part of something else, I'm not going to enjoy being a part of what God has for us to be a part of. This is a new season. right? We're moving into a new realm, guys. Now, what I want to close with, I want to invite us into a little bit of a self-examination here. And it's to ask the question of, are you packed and ready? In, in, the, in the sovereign purpose of God, God has appointed us for such a time as this. It was the purpose of God that you and I would be in this city, in this season, living through Katrina, ministering to people, preparing our lives for the future. It was the purpose of God that we would do that. It was the purpose of God that this would be the group in the other half that's meeting tomorrow. This would be the group that would get under the burden of rebuilding. And guys, I know it's been a burden. I know it has. And it's going to continue to be a burden. We told you we're not about to cross the finish line financially. For the next few years, this rebuilding will sit on us. So we're not done being under the weight of that. But for such a time as this, God chose a people who would be willing and eager to sacrifice to give up the palace and live in the ruins if they had to. 
in order to see the kingdom of God coming. Now, now when we move back in, remember, this, this church, now who was it prayed this way? I think, I think Daniel prayed this way this morning. Prayed about, you prayed about our reputation. Right? Last night as I was praying for us as a church, I prayed exactly those words. This church is going to create a reputation. Now, I'm not so interested in the reputation that's associated with our name, but I'm very concerned for the reputation associated with God's. That church over there. Yeah, that one that just got rebuilt. Yeah, that church over there. Okay, what are people going to say besides cute building? I hope they say what some of the things that Daniel prayed about during prayer this morning. That people's lives are being undone. I went to that church and my life has never been the same again. They met the power of God and the purpose of God in the gathering of the people of God. And listen, you and I are going to be a part of creating the reputation for this church. And we're going to pass it on to our kids and then we'll be gone. Now the question is, what's that reputation going to sound like? What are you and I about to do with this hour in time that we're about to be given? Can't blame historic Christianity. We have an opportunity to write history for the future. Now we've already, by the grace of God, written some pretty incredible history as far as I'm concerned. Because when you walk in this building next week, um, you're going to be affected by what God has blessed us with. I was talking to one of the painters the other day, walking around just putting some finishing touches on, and um, I was just joking with him. I, I said, you're probably sick of living here, huh? Because they've been, they've been in that building for a while. So you're probably ready to move on. Uh, and he actually said, well, honestly, he says, I'm going to be a little sad to go. He says, I really love this building. He said, he said I've, I've been painting in New Orleans for many, many years, and I've painted a bunch of churches, and there is no church like this in this city. Well, that's going to be the effect that many folks will experience. They walk in because you have sacrificed to build something that's going to get people's attention. Now, um, whether you're feeding 5,000 with some food, what they ultimately need to hear is the gospel. Right? The building can't do anything for them except maybe attract them to stick their foot in at one time. But that's all it will take. If the power and the presence of God is in our midst and in our lives, then that one time is all it's going to take. But that's the reputation we're really after. That the impact of the life and the presence of God in our midst is so incredible. That people see God. Listen, the face of historic Christianity is something to weep over. The power of the presence of God something people only talk about. The holiness of the character of God is something people don't even care about. That's historic Christianity. I'm ready to part with that. This is a new day. So, if that's where we're going, right? Has everybody got their bags packed? Right? Are your bags packed? Right? I mean, don't come back here next week. If you want to come to church, you'll come on Sunday. Danny will be here on Sunday. If you come on Saturday, ain't nobody here. It's time to go. Now, if I were to ask you, what's in your luggage? See, we pack. Do you make little lists when you pack? You go somewhere? I pack differently if I'm going to Mexico, you know, to go build something or go through villages than if I'm going to a meeting in Gaithersburg. I just pack differently, you know? Don't you stick tools in there, hammers and stuff? I don't take that to Gaithersburg. Wherever you're going and what you plan on doing there is informing what you stuck in your luggage. So right now would be a good time for us to consider what, what, are you, what have you packed into your life to take with you into this new building? Now, everybody right now needs to be searching their luggage before we put it on the bus here. Everybody needs to be searching their luggage. Have you been intentional about packing anything in your luggage? So we don't want to just pull into a new setting. It's kind of like, uh, I'm just kind of here. I got no direction. There's nothing in my heart. I got no burden for anything. I'm just here in a lovely building with a bunch of people. That's not how we're supposed to be going, guys. We're, we should be like rockets like Nehemiah. When we get there, give me 52 days and you're going to see something happen. That's what ought to be in our hearts. God's moving and he wants to move in us and through us. And remember this mindset here. 
We saw in Nehemiah 4. Look at that verse 6. So we built the wall, and all the wall was joined to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. The people had a mind to work. Now, are we returning with a mind to work? Is our heart filled that we're ready to work? We're ready to build the kingdom. The day for building has finally come in a greater way. The doors have been opened for us to build the kingdom. Do we have a mind to work? And I want to just look quickly at what does that look like for these guys before we close? Well, two things that work look like for these guys. One, it looked like a passion. These guys are obsessed. They're going to get some things done. 52 days after years and years of neglect, 52 days, because they're full of passion. That word there, it's a, a mind to work. It's an awkward word to translate there because it really has to do not with just they made their mind up kind of a thing. It has to do with what's in your heart, that compelling sense about you. Different translations say the people were inspired by the work. I like that. I like that sense because it's, it's, it gives me a sense of what does this feel like on the inside to put my hands up. Well, when you're inspired to do something, right, you rise up with a whole different sense of, you know, some of my kids are, hey, can you take the trash out? <laughs> you know, there's no inspiration. And my kids don't launch off the sofa going, yes, in slow motion. <laughs> you know, no, it's just come back, get it done, get it over with. This is inspiration. This is seizing the heart kind of stuff. The NIV says the people worked with all their heart. The Hebrew word for mind, actually, it has to do with the heart of a person. Charles Finchon says the heart of the people was to do the work. Their heart was set on it. You know how you are when you have your heart set on something? You think about it a lot. You anticipate it. You look forward to it because your heart is in it. This, this, this internal thing is where we get the word guts from. That guy's got guts. What am I trying to say when I say that? I'm trying to say there's something on the inside of that guy that makes him do unusual stuff. He's got guts. That's what that word is trying to get to. The guts that are in us. Listen, this is a whole lot more. Now, if you grew up in the religious systems I grew up in, you had things that were rightly called holy days of obligation. You know how much Christianity has turned into obligation for Christians? I hope you're not here this morning because you're obligated to be here. I hope you're here this morning because you're inspired for the glory of God. I hope you pick your Bible up and read it, not because you're obligated to give some report to your accountability partner, but because you find God in it and you are inspired to see the glory of God one more time a little bit closer. So this is a big difference between tolerance and doing duty. This is passion. These guys were full of passion. They came back with a mind to work. We want this. And I want God to have us have that kind of heart to want this. It's kind of what it looked like. I put this passage from when David spoke of taking the offering up for the presence of God in the temple. David the king said to all the assembly, Solomon, my son, whom alone God has chosen, is young and inexperienced. And the work is great. For the palace will not be for man, but for the Lord God. I hope you feel that way about what God's doing with us. What we're doing is not for man. I'm energized by the fact that this is for the glory of God to come in our midst and affect people's lives so that they would turn and see the glory of God and honor him with their lives. So when that's your heart, this is what David said. So I have provided for the house of my God. So far as I was able, gold, silver, bronze, Iron, wood, besides great quantities of onyx stones. And then look at verse 3. Moreover, that's a great word right there. Moreover, in addition to, that ought to be kind of the mindset. That's the posture of a Christian. Not just I'm doing bare minimum. I'm doing what just the, the bottom line of what's expected of me. No, no, no. Moreover, in addition to. See, when you want something, that's how you treat it, isn't it? You want to eat something that's just absolute delight, you want more of it, right? You don't eat it and say, okay, I took my spoonful, okay? Are you satisfied? That's like medicine that tastes nasty. Nobody says, ooh, can I have more of that? But I give you the right ice cream, you want more of that. Why? Because you delighted in it. See, this is what's missing in the Christian universe too much. We don't delight in God. Therefore, we don't want any more of Him. But we know we need Him and we're supposed to have Him, so we'll go through the motions of something. Listen, that's what God said, close the doors on. 
That's what began the exile when God says, I don't, I don't want that kind of worship. Keep it to yourself. Go through the motions. You bring your heart. You come to me like I'm worth something to you, and I've inspired your life. Moreover, David said, in addition to all that I have provided for the holy house, I have a treasure of my own, of gold and silver. And because of my devotion to the house of my God, I give it to the house of my God. See, when you're inspired, you'll do more than you should have done. That's how they were. They had a passion for God. Now, go ahead and come up here. Last thing is, is work, a mind to work, look like <clears throat> participation. It looked like a passion, and it looked like participation. You know, when you get to, act, to Nehemiah chapter 4, if you go back in Nehemiah chapter 3, he kind of gives you the, the recounting of, here's what happened when we rebuilt the wall. Listen to this description. It's just a great picture here. Verse 1, Then Eliashim, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priest, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hananel. And next to him, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zechur, the son of Emri, built. The sons of Hassanah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts and its bars. And next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, repaired. And next to them, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, son of Meshezebel, repaired. And next to them, Zadok, the son of Bana, repaired. And next to them, and next to them, and next to them, and next to them, until you could go all the way around Jerusalem where the wall was. And there was somebody on the wall, building on the wall. And it got a little complicated for them because when they started to rebuild the wall, the people around them began to say, ooh, this is going to be a problem. If they rebuild this wall, we can't raid the city anymore. So they began to bring opposition now. So now they had to come up with another plan. Now let me just be warned here. It's a whole other message I won't do today. Be warned, when we go back, there will be opposition. Now, here's what they did. When the opposition came, they took the guys who had hammers in their hands, and they took one of them and said, here, you work with a hammer, and you hold the spear, and you watch my back while I work. And so all around the wall, you had a guy working and a guy ready for war, and a guy working and a guy ready for war, and a guy working and a guy ready for war, all around the wall, so that if there was an attack... There was somebody looking for the attack. Now, this is a great picture, guys. And I've got a couple of questions in that I want you to visit when you get into your covenant groups and talk through some of these things. Question number one for you. Who are you standing next to? When it comes to the ministry of the kingdom of God, who are you standing alongside of? See, because if... This will be a hard question to answer if you're, if you're not doing anything. So if you're doing something, you can immediately think, I, I do this ministry with this person. I'm connected to this person, to this group, to these activities. Because I, my hands are on the wall. My hands are building the kingdom. Now, if you're not building, you're going to have a hard time finding who you're connected to. So that kind of gives away a little bit about, what's the agenda of my life? Am I a, am I a builder of the kingdom? Everybody's called. Everybody was on the wall. We're supposed to be on the wall. We need to be on the wall. What's your job? We're returning. What are you going to go back and do? What are you putting your life toward? What are you spending your energy on? What are you going to get under the burden of? What are you going to do in 52 days? What assignment's going to rise up in your heart? How are you contributing to the building of the kingdom? Whose back are you covering? See, there's somebody working right near you that you need to be watching as well for them, praying for them, carrying burden, watching the enemy for them. So you ought to be working and watching and working and watching. That's how we're called to live in the kingdom. Now here's my question for what's in your luggage. When we return, there will be many, many opportunities for ministry. And one of them I want to get in front of us and make sure you hold on to this. It's a ministry of hospitality. And you don't have to be on the hospitality team to be hospitable. But it'd be great if you wanted to. The ministry of hospitality looks like this. It looks when you, like when you walk into a gathering, you have in a sense in your heart to care for people every time you're together. You're going to walk into a building, and I guarantee you guys on Saturday, you, you, don't, you don't know half of the people that are here right now, do you? There's a whole other half that's going to meet tomorrow 
that you almost don't know any of them. So before anybody from Lakeview or your neighbors or your friends walk through the door, we don't know each other anymore. And then in the midst of us is going to come all kinds of visitors and people that are curious about the building and people are going to get all these invitations that we're sending out and officials, etc. They're going to show up. Okay. People should be overwhelmed with how many people introduce themselves to them. Let me just give you a word of advice. You should never be able to leave a meeting. You should never be able to leave a meeting without having introduced yourself to someone here. That's hospitality. It's letting people know your presence here matters to me. And so I want to know about you. This is who I am. I introduce my family. How long have you been here? Listen, don't be afraid of them saying, eight years. How long have you been here? Uh, a few weeks. Uh, great. Well, the guy who was here for eight years should have been introducing himself to you. But he didn't. So you take that responsibility. Care for people. Anyway, I, I get so blessed and amazed by hearing stories of people who came into the church and they were here one time and somebody grabbed them and went to lunch with them. That same day. Right? They just got one shot of being in here and said, hey, well, some of us are going off to lunch. You want to come? And just including, that's hospitality. Everybody should be doing that when we go back. The, the ministry of prayer. We have a huge need to revamp and revitalize our prayer force ministry. Everybody can do that. Now, some of you are called to do it in an unusual level. Fine. Is that you? I mean, is that a tool you're taking back with you? You're going to stand on the wall with a tool and build the kingdom because that's a gift that God has given you? Or the ministry of evangelism? Or ministry of serving? There's many realms that we need serving in. Outreach? care within the body just the building functioning see we go back with tools right when we get there we set our luggage down there ought to be stuff inside this thing that i'm going to unpack and my life is going to begin to be unpacked in the callings of god and the burdens of god i'm coming back with an agenda now i don't know if that describes all of us but this morning can we just stop and ask god lord do i need to pack more carefully This is it. It's time, guys. It's time to go home. Let's stand up. Lord, uh, next week, God, we will celebrating your faithfulness to us. For the last time we will pray together in this building. My mind is full of these altars. where these people have run to you for grace and mercy and help through our season of need in these last few years. And you have met us over and over again. And it's time to go now. I thank you for your great kindness to us in this place. Thank you for this season, Lord, that you fixed for us. Thank you for choosing to set us in it. Oh, I don't know that we would have volunteered had you not appointed us. But your ways are right and they are perfect. And you have done right by us, Lord. But we confess that before you today. You have done right by us. All your judgments have been righteous and true. And thank you, Lord, for your perfect ways that have been in our midst. Thank you for this season of our lives. Lord, what we want to do now is we want to pack up and move to the next season. God, would you visit each of our hearts with a sense of what am I going back to do? God bless us to be a church whose reputation is they had a mind to build. They had a mind to work. They had the guts to 
do things in the kingdom of God. There was no boundaries. There was nothing that could contain this church. Incredible things happened. People's lives were affected for eternity. Blinded eyes were opened. The jackals were undone. Captives went free. Lord, may it be said of us, God, prepare us for the day when you release us into ministry, armed, hearts ablaze, pulling out hair if we need to, but getting it done because we love your glory. Yes, yes. We love your glory with a passion, Lord, not casually. So, Lord, Lord, thank you. Thank you for what you have done. Thank you, Lord, for what you are about to do. In Jesus' name. Amen.